Welcome to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. Mr. Bronchick is an attorney, best-selling author, and a real estate investor with 25 years' experience. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com. The topic today is seven tips for negotiating real estate deals. There are many, many more strategies that I'm going to cover today in the Power Real Estate Negotiating course, but I thought I would take the highlight of what I think are the top most important seven for negotiating deals, whether you're buying or selling or, or renting or, or whatever. So the first thing is in any negotiating scenario is you want to get rapport with the other party to get them to take their guard down and also have some liking of you. Uh, They may not like you, but at least if you can get them to get their guard down and find out uh, what it is that they're really after, you're going to find negotiating is a lot easier. Some people are all about business and want to sit down and just start negotiating. I think that's a mistake. Um, I think that if you don't take the time to get to know the other party a little bit, not just on a personal level, like, you know, where they come from, what their history is, how many kids, and, you know, that that's all chit-chat, and I think that's important. But getting a feel for how their mind works. It's hard to negotiate with someone if you assume that they think like you in terms of decision-making instead of some other possible way. So the first thing you want to do is, of course, the normal chit-chat, get to know them, be genuine, uh, try to find some commonality, and then you want to get a little deeper and really take a look and a listen and a feel. And the reason I said those three uh, options there is because we're going to look at the technique of NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which was made popular by Tony Robbins, but has been around for a very long time. And it's the study of how people um, communicate and make decisions based on their language their feelings, and their uh, visual perceptions. So there are three general categories of people um, in terms of the way they communicate and in terms of the way they learn and process. So there's visual people, auditory people, and kinesthetic people. Now, it may be hard for you in five or ten minutes to, to figure out, well, which one is this person? Some people will just jump right out at you and you'll realize immediately which category they're in. Some are a little harder to read, but at the very least, you can narrow it down to two versus three. So, for example, if someone talks quickly, very excitedly, if they look up when they think, they're looking for pictures, they're looking for memories, that's a visual person. I see, I can picture that. I, 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 I can uh, visualize what you're talking about. So if, if you've got a visual person, you have to communicate in visual terms. Do you see how this works for you, Mr. Seller? And such language like that. The second group is the auditories, which process by sound. Does that ring a bell? How does that sound to you? And usually that type of person is very articulate, chooses their words carefully, 
and is not necessarily a uh, pure visual thinker. Now, sometimes people go both ways, and it's hard to really narrow it down. But the third category is pretty easy to spot, and that's called the kinesthetic. They go by feeling or internal uh, mechanisms. So they tend to be slow talkers. They tend to be kind of mellow. And you have to use language like, how does that grab you? Do you feel like this is something that will work for you? Um, what does your gut tell you? That's the language you use for that type of person. And that type of person is usually pretty easy to spot. Um, they're pretty laid back, pretty mellow. Some people look at, at kinesthetic people and think they're slow or dumb or stoners or whatever, but they're not. They just process differently. They tend to be slower in their thought process. They think about it a lot. They get a gut feeling. And you have to take your time with someone like that. And I think it's important when you communicate with people, you communicate in the same language, meaning if they're fast talking, incomplete sentences, uh, talking pictures, thinking pictures, then you mirror them. If they're auditory, then you mirror them too. If they're kinesthetic, you have to slow it down and talk a little softer. Uh, and that's hard for a guy like me, you know, because I'm a more of a visual person. Although when I teach, I, I generally default to auditory, which is very interesting. I, I talk in, in, in very calculated words, but I learn, on the other hand, visually. So sometimes people communicate and learn in two different modes. You just have to get a feel for um, what it is. And if you're not sure, just use all three. You know, just like, you know, how does that look to you, Bob? Does that sound good? How does that feel inside? <laughs> if you're not sure, you just you know, try to get a smattering of all three categories if you're not sure. And eventually you'll figure out you know, where, where this person lies in the three categories. And that's really important because it's a subtle subconscious connection that they'll get to know and like you. Now, you may be thinking, if I do what they do and it's not my normal mode, Mode, they're going to see that I'm manipulating them or trying to be something I'm not. And people do not know what you're doing. They're so wrapped up in their own thoughts and ideas and situations, they'll not recognize what you're doing, especially over the phone. They will not recognize what you're doing. Now, it's different over the phone than it is in person. Over the phone, you've only got the communication of auditory. So, You've got um, uh, sound, pace, tonality, uh, volume. You could change those to match and mirror the person you're talking to. Now, for example, I'm from New York. Um, some people can catch my accent once in a while, especially when I'm pissed off in traffic. Um, but most people, you know, I think I, I talk fairly neutral unless they're from the East Coast. They catch it. But if I'm talking to someone from Texas, I have to be careful not to start using the Brooklyn alphabet. Uh, you probably know the Brooklyn alphabet, F and A, F and B, F and C, F and D. <laughs> I'm careful. <laughs> if I'm talking to someone who's uh, uh, very uh, faithful and religious, I gotta be careful not to use um, uh, spicy language, so to speak. I'm, I'm not gonna put on a Texas accent to talk to a Texas person but I will use their language. So for example, where I come from, you call it soda. They call it soda pop. 
you wear sneakers. They call them tennies. I have uh, on top of my house a roof. Some people say roof. So just I know it's simple things like that will connect with them in a certain way that is invisible and immediately they like you, but they don't know why. And people tend to want to do business with people they like. Sometimes you've met salespeople that you paid full price just because, well, that was a nice guy. And other times you didn't like them, so you wanted to beat them up really bad on the price and terms. The more they like you, the more likely they're going to they're gonna play along. Not always, but this is very important to start out with. Okay. Number two. Find out what the other person wants before making an offer. Especially when you're dealing with sellers, people think it's all about price. And it's not all the time. Sometimes it's about a fast closing. Sometimes it's about um, uh, having the ability to stay in the house for a month after closing. Sometimes there's a specific goal they're trying to achieve, like I can't afford to make my payments or I need my equity out to buy another house. Whatever it is, don't start talking turkey until you know what it is that they want. What are they trying to accomplish with this transaction, whether you're buying or selling? So really get down and dirty into, you know, what what happens after you move, Mr. Seller, or after you close? What, what's the situation? Are you moving somewhere else? Are you buying another house? Um, are, are you looking for cash out to pay a um, pay for a large purchase or pay off debt or you know whatever it is you have to get down to the down and dirty you know price is just is just an illusion when you're talking to a seller it's what they want to do after they net x dollars out of the sale or maybe it's just getting out from under the monthly payments so you got to figure out what it is that they want if you start talking seller financing to a seller who owns a house free and clear and their goal is to use the cash to buy another house cash, you're wasting your breath. Okay? So you've got to know what they what their wants and needs are before you go out and make an offer. Sometimes it's something you could solve in other ways. For example, let's say a seller says, well, I have to pay off this, you know, $30,000 in credit card debt, and they're hounding me every day with a collection company. Well, you should be thinking... Well, if it's a collection company, they're negotiable because the collection company, first of all, is probably going to get 30 to 50 percent of whatever they collect. And they're willing to take less because they don't care. They just want to collect what they can collect. If you get a situation where someone says, I got to pay off 30,000 in credit card debt and they're in default of the debt. They haven't paid it, especially if it's been to a collection company. You could say, well, what about Mr. Seller? If I was able to take care of that 30,000 in debt and then pay you X dollars difference and pay off your loan or assume your loan or take subject to your loan. You could go to the collection company and negotiate that 30 down to 10 and put an extra 20 in your pocket. And it, remember, it wasn't the 30 they wanted. It was paying off the debt. So knowing what they need and want can make you more money. Number three, know your bottom line. Know what your bottom line is going in and never offer that as your first position. People like to go in and say, I don't want to mess around. The bottom line is I'm willing to pay X and they give their final position away. That's ridiculous. Most people when you're negotiating with want to feel like they got a, you to move a little bit. 
So if you offer your bottom line at first and they don't feel like you came off of that a little bit, they're going to feel cheated because, um, you know, despite the old win-win scenario, most people just want to win. Uh, win-win's an illusion. It's not that one person won and one person, the other person won. Somebody has to lose on some part of the negotiation, but it's the, if you can make them feel like it's win-win or they won and you won, but they think you lost, but that's okay. That's what you're looking at. So um, you never offer your bottom line at first. You always start at a position higher or lower or more or less or faster or slower or whatever it is. And then you come down off your position and make the person feel like they beat you up a little bit so they feel satisfied. Otherwise, most people are not going to feel good about the negotiation. Number four, do not make the first offer. The first offer rule says the other person makes the first offer. So a lot of times they're going to pin you down. What's your bottom line? What are you willing to pay me? Uh, what do you, what, what do you give me for my house? Um, don't make the first offer. Instead, you should make it as the opposite. You should talk first and say, well, Mr. Seller, um, what's your bottom line here? If you were going to, um, uh, sell me the house quickly and I can make this problem go away. Uh, what's the best you can do in terms of price? So you're doing is you're asking them to give you their bottom line. And then you're going to negotiate from there. Now, if they, if, if you get into a game sometimes where they say, well, what are you willing to give me? And you say, well, what do you want? And they say, well, what are you offering? <laughs> sometimes you get into that little game. Um, you can make a first offer, but it's not going to be one that they like. So uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But try not to be the one that takes the first position. And if you do take a position, it's got to be something that is not your bottom line. Um, number five, be patient. Wear them down. It's amazing to me how impatient and worn down people get in negotiating. And then they just, at some point, say, all right, enough already. I mean, I've been through all-day mediations, and they're tough, 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 tough. They wear you down. I started a mediation where I was suing a company, and I was looking for, you know, as much as I can get. Their first offer was $2,500, and I said to the mediator, I said, I'm out of here. And he said, just be patient, just be patient. We were in different rooms. And the, so the mediator goes to the other room and then says, and I, I think I countered with um, uh, you know, 250 or something like that. And of course they said, oh, you're out of your mind. But, and they came back with, uh, I think, 25. And, you know, in the end, after a whole day, they ended up giving me over $80,000, which was more than, quite frankly, I expected. Um, but their first offer was 2500 So you'd be surprised how time wears people down. When the car company started doing business in Japan, they would go to Japan and they'd give a presentation to the Japanese a yeah, big, long three-hour presentation. The Japanese would just stare at them with a blank stare and say, we do not understand. And then the American guy would be 
frustrated and say, okay, let me do it all over again. And they look at him and say, we do not understand. And eventually, they were playing a game. Of course they understood. They're just wearing down the other party. And when people get tired and worn out, they tend to give in. It's no surprise why salespeople who sell door-to-door come at night. Why? Not just because you're home, because you're tired. Because you're tired. And they're more likely to make a sale. Uh, Now, some of you might look at this as manipulation. Um, well, it's, it's a tool. It's a tool that you use to get something you want. Now, I don't say take advantage of people or do things wrong or put people in a worse scenario that you found them. Of course, that's unethical. Um, if you know what they want and you give them what they want and you end up with a steal to them, it's win-win, Right. Just because you bought it at half price doesn't mean you're taking advantage of someone if they're happy about it. I've had a lot of scenarios where I bought a property super cheap, super terms, and and the guy hugged me and said, thank you, after we closed. And I stole the house. But that's not what they wanted. What they wanted was the problem to be over. That's the win for them. Okay? All right. Number six, let's go into some negotiating ploys, and there's a lot of these in the course, but go over some of the some of the more fun ones. The first one is called the flinch. And when the other party makes an offer, what you want to do is flinch. So they go, well, I want 500 for my house. You go, what? 500? Are you nuts? And all of a sudden, they feel like, oh, man, did I ask too much? Did I do something wrong? Because, you know, Americans don't want to offend people. They want to be nice, want to be, you know, if you're in the Middle East, <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, nothing against Middle East people. But that's they're used to doing business like that. Um, they flinch at everything. So they're used to this. Now, there's a counter to the flinch. And the counter to the flinch is to, uh, if someone, for example, let's say you make the first offer. So they don't flinch. Let's say you want to pay um, 400 and they're asking somewhere to the tune of 500. Now, if you offer 300, they're going to flinch. So you have to soften it and say something like, Mr. Seller, I had a different number in mind. And I have a feeling that if I tell you this number, you're going to get very offended. And you're a nice guy. I don't want to offend you. So... I don't know if I should even give you the number. And they'll say, oh, no, 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 go ahead. Give me a number. I won't be offended. Oh, no, I don't want to offend you. It's, it's, it's a lot lower than you think it is. Oh, no, go ahead. Tell me. And I say, you promise you won't be offended? I promise. Okay. I'm thinking more in the neighborhood of 300. Now, they're not going to flinch. They're going to go, ooh, that's really low. But they didn't flinch. They didn't flinch. So for every ploy, there's a counter, right? The higher authority, that's one of my favorite ones. Uh, Mr. Seller, if you're willing to take X, I'll have to talk to my partner, my wife, my boss, my whoever, and get their approval. But if you're willing to go X, I think I can get them to approve it. That's the higher authority. You need someone else's permission. Okay, it works very, very well. Now, there's a counter to that. 
Uh, I was at a car dealership, and car dealerships do this all the time, right? You're talking to the salesperson, and they say, well, I can't promise you X, but if you if you sign your initials on this little piece of paper that I drew out the price and terms, I'll bring it to my boss and see if I can get it approved. I don't know. It's a really killer deal, and I'm not authorized to. Of course they're authorized to. Um, so they go into the you know the boss's office you could see him through the window in another office and they're talking and talking and talking finally a guy comes back and says yeah i got my boss to approve it or i got my boss to approve you know some variation of that that's nonsense that's the higher authority ploy and they do it all the time okay so how do you counter that well one time i was at the jaguar dealer i was negotiating on a car and the guy comes to me and offers me a particular thing. And I say, no, I want X. And he goes, well, I'm going to have to talk to my boss. He talks to the boss, comes back in, says, no, I can't do this, but I can do that. And I said, nope, I want this. And he goes back to his boss. And by the third time, I got annoyed. And I said, you know what? Let's go together to your boss. And I got up and started walking out towards the boss's office and the guy turned white as a ghost he says he starts shaking his head no 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 please don't do that please don't you're gonna get me fired i'll give you the deal i'll give you the deal <laughs> because he knows i'm just cutting off the higher authority by pulling the higher authority into the conversation so if someone pulls that on you like well i gotta talk to my wife i gotta talk to my broker my uncle my attorney let's get them on the phone right now and then just cut that right off uh, the next one is the uh, ranging technique, the ranging technique. So ranging is something like this. Seller says, I want 500. And you're saying, well, 300. So somewhere between 300 and 500. Would you go somewhere between 4 and 450? And they might go, well, closer to 450. But all right, somewhere between 430 and 450. Uh, let's meet in the middle, th uh, 440. You see, you see what I'm doing here? I'm ranging him, ranging him, you know, to get a range. He's going to all, you know, default towards one side of the range and I'm going to default on the other. But what we're doing is we're trying to come to close to an approval. And then once you get where you're like, you know, just a small apart, like 20 grand apart on a, on a, on a negotiation, you just said, okay, Mr. Seller or Mr. Buyer, uh, how about we just uh, meet in the middle and split it, split the difference? OK, and, and that's a great one because people want to be fair. They want to meet in the middle. They want to be agreeable. Now, the counter to that, of course, is you stick to your guns. When you say 400 and they go 400 to 450, you go, no, 400. You just don't let them range you at all. Or if they say, let's split the difference, you don't have to split it 50-50. You could split it 60-40. You know, don't don't fall into the trap of of doing the the good old American uh, meet in the middle, the quote, fair thing to do. Um, the trial close, the trial close. That That's a good one. You should be doing that always. The trial close is when a when a salesman says, you know, after we purchase this, um, would you like them to come install it on Tuesday or Thursday? That's what is what is the trial closes. It's a statement assuming you're already going to buy 
and then asking a question relevant to that. They're putting you into the mode of you're already buying. Okay. Would you like a clear coat on the car or would you like the bigger engine? Do you like red or do you like blue? Uh, would you like delivery today or another day? The same thing when you're talking to a seller or buyer in real estate. They say, say something like, well, Mr. Seller, after we close, um, uh, what do you plan on doing with the money or where are you going to move to? So that's, a, that's a, called a trial close. You're, you're assuming in the question that you're going to do a deal and then asking a question. And it's a subtle subconscious suggestion that you're going to do a deal. Okay. Now, the way to counter that, of course, is if someone says, well, after we close, blah, blah, blah. You say, well, let's not talk about closing yet. Let's work. We got some things to work on first. So you, you just counter it by taking that away, taking that assumption away. Um, are they... And this goes back to number one, the NLP part. Are they an inside decision maker or an outside decision maker? This is very important. Mr. Seller, when you bought this house, did you buy it based on your own decision or did someone help you with that decision? If they say, well, my wife made the purchase or my uncle or my broker suggested I buy it, that means they're probably an outside decision maker. They look to external uh, factors or people to make a decision as opposed to an inside decision maker, otherwise known as a know-it-all. <laughs> uh, not necessarily, but some people just know, like they get a gut feeling, especially if they say, nah, I knew my gut, this was good. They've told you two things. They're an inside decision maker and they're kinesthetic. Okay. So um, if you ask a couple of questions like that, you'll get to whether they need to make the decision themselves or you to make the decision for them. So if you say, if they're a clearly outside decision maker, you could say, look, you know, I think the best thing for you would be blah, 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 blah. And they probably listen as opposed to Mr. Seller. What do you think is the best scenario? And let them come up with what you were going to suggest anyway. It really is effective. So when you get to, you know, price and terms and everything, and you want to put the contract together right on the spot. If you have the contract on the table, which you should during the whole negotiation, so there's no awkward moment where you pull out the contract. If you say, Mr. Seller, I think it's time we fill out the agreement, don't you? That would be an outside decision maker. If he's an inside decision maker, you could just kind of glance down at the contract and look at him and say, what do you think we ought to do now, Mr. Seller? And he's going to say, well, let me see your contract. You see, inside versus outside, right? Um, and finally, number seven, handling objections. This is such an important part of it because inevitably you're going to run across an objection with a seller or buyer or whoever you're negotiating with. And how you handle an objection is very, very important to whether or not you're going to close a deal. Let's say you're dealing with a seller who has no equity and he wants to get out from under the payments and you're suggesting having him deed it over to you subject to the mortgage and you'll make his payments. Now, what's the obvious objection that we're all going to get? How do I know you're going to make my payments? Now, if you respond, first of all, most objections are not really what the issue is. They're raising objections because they're afraid or they don't trust you. 
So if they say, well, how do I know you're going to do X? And you say, well, you could trust me. Or, oh, I've never not done that before. You just created more distrust. Because what, you, what you've done is you've told the person your objection is unreasonable. That's not a legitimate objection. And you make them feel bad about themselves and they get pissed at you. All right. Instead of that, you have to validate the objection. So first you say, let me see if I understand your objection, Mr. Steller. You think that if I buy this house from you and make payments, I may not make them. Is that what I understand your issue is, Mr. Seller? And he'll say, yes. Well, that's a very good point you brought up. And it's a legitimate point. A lot of people have the same issue when I deal with them in these situations. I'm glad you brought it up. Now you make them feel good. You make them feel like, okay, he understands me. He understands my issue. Not that you're uh, um, belittling him. Uh, definitely when you use language like, yeah, but you've just completely obliterated any trust. Okay. After you say, well, that's a great objection. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Here's the real truth. Now, you could you could do things like, well, we could set up a third party to escrow payments and make them f directly to your lender. Or I can make an auto draft out of my account monthly. Um, and so you're dealing with the issue on, a, on an intellectual level. I, I, I don't think that's the proper way to do it because, like I said, most objections are not real. They're just people saying, I don't trust you or I'm afraid. So the best thing I found is just look them right in the eyes and tell the truth. Mr. Seller, the honest truth is you don't know if I'm going to make the payments or not. And just stare them straight in the eye. And the first one who blinks loses. So most of the time I found in that scenario, after about 10 seconds of staring, the seller will go, okay. Or you could add to that, or if they get a little, well, I don't know, um, just say, well, Mr. Seller, do you have any other solutions to your issue at this time? And if they say no, they often just say, all right, I'll do it. And they'll appreciate you being honest. Even if they don't like you or trust you, when you be honest like that, the objection goes away because, like I said, most times the objection is not really the objection. It's something else. So that's the best way to handle a tough question. When there's really no good answer, just look them right in the eye and go, there is no guarantees and just look them right in the eye. But do you have any other solutions at this time? Does that make sense? So those are my seven. You'll find more in the Power Real Estate Negotiating course, which I hope many of you have gone through or will go through. Or if you have, we'll go through again. Enjoy it. Learn it. Use it. Live it. Have fun with it. Information and free articles and videos. Visit his website at www.legalwiz.com